The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today has become a leading expert in climate change and the communication strategies essential to positive growth in business and environmental protection and social adaptation. His theories and work provide paramount and profound interpretation of our challenges in which knowledge and education have become key in assuring the stable and secure future for generations to come. He joins me today by telephone from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to you. Thank you, David. Well, thanks for having me back. You are very welcome, Tom. Uh, let's uh, jump straight into this. We're talking about climate change and this, uh, this uh, magical word, uh, sustainability. And can we start off, Tom, by a brief overview of the challenges that all of us are faced right now? Sure. Um, in fact, they are multiple and they're, and they're interacting with one another. And I think at the very root of it all is the fact that never before in the world's history has the human population been so so large and growing so rapidly. Uh, you know, it took 95,000 years to reach a billion people, and most of the cultural identity that we carry around uh, below the surface in our, in our consciousness was developed at a time when the population was relatively small. Um, but the Industrial Revolution and advances in, in sanitation and health care and things like that allowed the population to just explode, and it continues to explode. So at the root of it, um, we, we have either exceeded or are close to exceeding the carrying capacity of the planet for people, uh, and we have, to this point, used some pretty ingenious technologies to, to allow ourselves to continue to grow. And we have to sort of ask ourselves what we mean, even, by sustainability. Are we, are we trying to maintain the current level of growth, uh, rate of growth in population? Are we trying to maintain the lifestyles those of us in the developed world lead? Are we trying to gracefully um, uh, sort of establish new limits for the numbers of people and the ways in which we live that, that are more equitable uh, and sustainable in the long sense um, for all the peoples of the world? It's all this technology and the development, of course, of, the fo of fossil fuels that has led us to, to, uh, to the set of problems that we confront today. Um, the most important, of course, is the burning of fossil fuels and deforestation, which is causing not only the climate to change, but it's changing the chemistry of seawater and, and putting the marine food webs it, uh, uh, at great risk. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a pretty significant pile of problems to begin with, David, I think. Um, yes, I'm overwhelmed, Tom. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I'm, I don't know where to go now. Um, <laughs> It's true, though, isn't it, that all of us tend to wait until the last minute. Um, and there's a couple of uh, responses that I'd l like to make to that opening statement. Number one is there's, uh, there is a very cynical argument from people over this word sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, I, I'm not sure that, that the populace or the civilization or, or, or the people of this country or any country are, are aware that we are already there 
uh, in this dilemma. I, I think that people are probably um, uh, defaulting um, maybe to the next generation. Is that a, a, an ultimate problem that we face? I think that's a huge problem that we face, and I, and I think that it has a couple of, uh, of aspects to it, some of which are... Uh, I don't think we should be terribly judgmental of ourselves about it, is what I'm trying to say. Um, we are wired, after all, to deal with a crisis in the moment. Um, humans are good at that. Most other animal species are good at that. We have the capacity, unlike most other animals, to forecast and to understand the risks that we face long term. But we are not especially good at, at keeping our eye on that ball and dealing with it. Um, so we have a predisposition to wait till things become a crisis and respond to the crisis. That's certainly the case in our political system. And I think to some degree it's the case for us psychologically. Um, but in addition, as you indicated after I, after I launched into my little litany at the beginning of this, um, there's something very unpleasant about facing these challenges. It's disquieting, it's scary, and I think it's very easy for us to turn our backs on it when it hasn't reached price, uh, crisis proportion yet. Now, do you believe yourself, Tom, that it has actually reached that crisis level now? Oh, I think, I think so. I mean, I think we're on the verge of, of the experience of those consequences. Uh, no one can really say for certain. And this is the great, um, this is the great uncertainty that, that people banty about. You know, uh, we typically hear from alarmists and we hear from people who say there's no problem at all. And, you know, the scientists will say the most likely outcomes are somewhere in between. But it's very clear that the world we are now living in is already fundamentally different than the world you and I grew up in. Um, the amount of carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere hasn't been this high in in at least a million years and probably 20 million years. Um, we are seeing changes in precipitation and weather patterns already. We're seeing the melting of glaciers on land and the thinning of Arctic sea ice, and uh, there are significant concern about what's happening in the in the uh, ice sheets in the Western Antarctic Peninsula and elsewhere. Um, it's it's clear that the conditions that we uh, that we grew up with that ultimately drive what the climate system is like have changed, um, and there's no real going back to it in any practical sense. So the question is, where do we want to apply the brakes, and and how will we adapt to the world that we're creating? Well, uh, <clears throat> what I think I might do now is just uh, go up to the top floor and throw myself off the building. That's a, yeah, um, that's one or <laughs> or. Um, I could respond to that as well by saying, do you not think that there's a greater power here that that will ultimately lead us in a certain direction and that human beings really won't have an awful lot to do with that? Um, now, I'm, I'm realizing here that that's a terribly naive statement, but... Uh, you know, we, there is no doubt in my mind, and I hope you'll agree with this, that we are possibly the most vital and important generation in three or four hundred years. And perhaps um, it, it is up to us to do as much as we can to uh, sympathize with this problem by um, creating a new model that, that has business working in concert with uh, environmental concerns. We know that there are ultimately um, 
great uh, dilemmas with that, great problems with that. Perhaps if we could just go back, Tom, and, and just start off with the dilemma and why we're here. Um, we saw the Industrial Revolution occur in the late 1700s. Uh, could you, as an expert, just run through the late 1700s to modern day to uh, just place out briefly the the paradigm that, that created so much pollution in our atmosphere that we see today? Well, it was essentially a discovery. Uh, by the way, I would lock the door to your roof. <laughs> okay, I'll go and do it I, I don't think that that's a, that's a great way to get a good view, but I don't think it's a good way to solve this problem, nor do I see it necessary. <laughs> okay, well, um, in, in that case, I'll just get out a glass of whiskey, and then I'll be just... Well, fine. you know, this is not the first time in history. This is the first time in history these problems have been global. But this is not the first time in human history that peoples have faced environmental challenges that have uh, have put them at severe risk. And in some instances, we've seen um, civilizations die out, societies become violent and fight for over, over the dwindling resources. But in other cases, uh, in fact, probably in more cases, people have been clever enough to invent solutions that have allowed people to coexist and for more and more people to thrive. That's how we've been able to get to a population of this size. And in fact, the the industrial so that makes me feel fairly hopeful and the uh industrial revolution you were talking about is a is a certainly a case in point um the discovery that we could burn coal and oil uh, and use these products to manufacture all sorts of things heating energy transportation became possible on a much greater scale and we began to insulate ourselves from um uh, from the difficulties imposed by nature uh, uh, at the same time, developing more and more robust crops and using uh, chemical uh, petrochemicals as fertilizers and herbicides to allow us to grow more and more food, um, using energy to move water around so that people like me can live in Southern California where we don't have anywhere near enough water for the number of people who live here, but we bring it in from the northern part of our state and from the Colorado River. Well, that, that's because um, everybody in Arizona won't let you have that water, Tom. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but we're a little upstream of them. <laughs> and, uh, but this is, you know, this is one of the issues that's before us in the American West now. The, the projections are that during this century, the Southwest will become a permanent dust bowl. And already, uh, we're seeing that happening in a sense. And, and what I mean by that is that the allocation of water from the Colorado River was made, as it turns out, at a time when uh, we were in a, in a relatively unusually wet period of our history, a decade that saw more rainfall than we have seen since in the last 50 years or so. Uh, and so the, the Colorado River, which supplies much of the water for several states in the American West and northern Mexico, is, is over-allocated already. Um, and, you know, whether we put the brakes on climate change or not uh, isn't really the point as far as that water resource is concerned. It's been drying up because it's been returning to a more typical state. Um, and this is the kind of thing that the, that the, the great um, energy and creative uh, hope of the Industrial Revolution is starting to run up against here and there. We've, uh, we've created enough waste and pollution. We've created, an, uh, you know, we've We've sort of run deficits in many natural systems. Um, and the question is, how will we pull ourselves out of this? Is that not a, uh, 
Is that not raising the the bigger moral and, and ethical questions here, though, about human beings? It, it's clear that with the onset of the Industrial Revolution and ever since then, that as human beings we have taken on the position that the world and the environment owes us rather than us being caretakers of the world, which I suppose could be uh, wound up in, into one word, and that is greed. Um, but Or entitlement, perhaps. Yes, which in itself is, uh, is a false methodology. But as far as sustainability is concerned, as far as uh, looking after the environment and you know, what is amazing to me is that we, we as human beings seem to like to predict. We constantly, if you look at the Weather Channel, they, they like to predict what the weather will be in, in, mm-hmm. in uh, two days, two years or two centuries. Uh, isn't it about time that we stopped trying to predict? Who, who really knows, who really wants to know what the future is going to bring? Should we not just be thinking about today and the ramifications of what we do today uh, upon the next uh, generation or their generation to come um, by examining perhaps uh, other uh, other methods, other parts of society, because you cannot surely just look at sustainability and environmental control without looking at business, without looking at the social consciousness of people and trying to figure out what they're going to do uh, with a new model, how that is going to work, because surely that is going to be the answer in looking after the environment? Well, you just raised a lot of issues. (laughs) I I don't think we will ever get away from trying to predict the future, and in some ways I don't think we should. I mean, it's it's, it's some of the apparatus we have to project risk and to avoid avoid things that could do us harm. And we do it in everything we do. We do it in in our food choices. Uh, We, you know, we sort of predict our, our, the health impacts of the things we eat, for example, and the amount of exercise we get. Um, It's certainly true in the environment as well. And in a sense, I think what I hear you saying is that that we have, in effect, pitted the um, sustainability of the environment, health of of the natural systems, against our, the health of our economy and the kind of resources and the lifestyle that, you know, that we use to live the lifestyle we live. And I absolutely think it's time to re-examine that relationship radically. Um, it, it doesn't mean that we have to suffer. It doesn't mean that we have to live a, a, an unpleasant or, or especially risky lifestyle. On the contrary, I think that if we sort of live within our environmental means and start to, uh, to manage that more carefully, I think we can do extremely well. But nevertheless, we are up against many challenges. It is not just the environment, it is the economy, mm-hmm. it is education, it is uh, um, the dilapidation of manufacturing uh, and industry, um, which is going to reduce uh, the future generation's ability to, to find uh, trades. Um, so there's there's all these aspects of our society that are going to culminate in a massive dilemma. Now, I guess what I'm asking here is that in order to help the environment, 
do we not have to consider the the basic model of business, the basic uh, social interaction of people, um, possibly even looking at minimizing the the global marketplace in order to to, to minimize carbon emissions, fossil fuels, everything else. It, it could be that there is such a uh, profound change in the in the general model that we we may just be coming to a society that is more uh, living uh, in a, a local sense rather than trying to um, continue this empire building that we have at the moment uh, in a globalized society. Well, I, I I think I would deconstruct it. I would suggest deconstructing it just a little bit differently. And based on a couple of thoughts, one is that, um, yes, we absolutely have to re-examine the role that business ownership and participating in, in the making of money uh, plays in our lives. Um, I am continually uh, dumbfounded by the attitude that business is only about making as much money as it possibly can. I am, in fact, a business owner. I have been for a long time, and, and I have always thought that the role of business is to be a part of the lives of the people who work in the business and the people who uh, buy services or products from the business, the people who support the business. Um, we have a much more important social function than just making money because, in fact, we are the place, places that most people spend the most hours of their day. But you, but but realizing that you've just said that, you you understand, and I'm completely in agreement, by the way. But you understand that if you made that statement in many places, that you would be absolutely laughed out of the out of the room. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think this is the root of the problem. You know, that's the definition of greed: is to is to ignore the long term consequences of what you do to make money today and assume that that's okay. And, and I'll be forthright about this. When I was in graduate school studying social ethics, there was a lot of discussion about whether people are inherently good or inherently evil, and, uh, which in, in a way is a, you know, sort of a, of a naive 25-year-old's question. And uh, one of my professors talked about a German theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr who, who had a pretty positive view of human nature until... He tried to work with Henry Ford on workers' rights issues, and he finally came to the conclusion that there are some people who just don't care about their fellow person. Um, and that's certainly the case. And in some sense, the great struggle for sustainability will be a struggle about uh, what we as a society will demand as uh, corporate behavior on our behalf. I'm not sure that globalism is necessarily a problem in, in as much as when, uh, when people who live in poverty develop their economies to the point where they are no longer in poverty. They tend to have fewer children. Um, they tend to become more humane places in some senses. Um, they're doing it in models uh, that, uh, of, of industrialization that are just horrifically polluting and terrible for their environment. Um, and I wonder if we really need to concentrate a lot of, of energy there. And I'll give you one very, very anecdotal, hopeful story. I met a gentleman this last weekend at a symposium who has a number of patent applications and, and has started businesses because they can, they can take 
the uh, gases that come out of smokestacks of power plants, and by mixing them with seawater and certain other minerals, they can make cement. It's inexpensive. In fact, it's profitable for them. It becomes a business to take the carbon pollution from power plants and convert it into a building material that the world eagerly wants. Um, now, I was completely dumbfounded. You know, we've been talking about investing taxpayer dollars to bury carbon dioxide in, in abandoned oil fields underground in hopes that it will stay there. And he had huge expense. No one's proved that it's even possible yet. And here's a guy who's able to actually put that carbon dioxide to productive use and make money doing it. Um, I don't believe that making money is the, is the grand solution to everything. But on the other hand, where it can be employed on our <laughs> on our all of our behalf that's probably a good thing well let me let me uh, come to that point and follow that up in a minute um if if i may tom can we just uh, complete uh, the general disturbance that we uh, we mm, have been absolutely. talking about we we know that the we have had an industrial revolution since the late 1700s we realize that that has created uh, pollution bad health um, and all the other um, grand causes that we see in the world today. Um, it has uh, driven apart uh, nations, it has created greed um, and, and huge uh, social multicultural problems in, in, in many ways. And, uh, yes, it has helped communication, um, it has certainly um, uh, allowed prosperity in a country like America. But nevertheless, uh, if you are in agreement, we are now in a situation today where we are going to have to pay that cost ourselves. And we're going to have to find ways to overcome uh, the, 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 the dreadful um, condition that that has left behind it. Mm -hmm. Before we go on, can you just, for the sake of our listeners, just define... Uh, in, in bullet point fashion, in brief fashion, sustainability, because it appears to me that there's a misunderstanding about this word. Um, I think that the, the many uh, upon us think that sustainability is simply um, somebody hoping that uh, weather patterns can improve, um, uh, rivers can be cleaned up, uh, carbon dioxide emissions can be reduced. But would I be right in saying that sustainability is a lot more than that? Yes, you would be right in saying that. I think, David, I think you. I think that what we're really talking about is something uh, completely unprecedented, and that is that we have to consider, for the first time, uh, managing nature, managing the conditions of of the natural environment. We have to, and we have to do it for a very long time, and we have to do it on a global scale. Uh, a lot of people react uh, to this, thinking that. That, that means there's an attempt to impose a single world government and take all our freedoms away. And, you know, that's, that's the most extreme and alarmist view of the problem. But the other side of the coin is that if we don't make agreements that, that the peoples of the world stick to, we don't have much hope of um, maintaining enough climate stability that we all thrive uh, or that we minimize the harm. Uh, likewise, uh, if we don't start managing water supplies in a in a more holistic and intelligent way, um, can I can I just um, move in there for one minute? Sure. And suggest that you would imagine that in order to accomplish that, then governments would have to come in. 
governments would have to start making um, that lost word to me, common sense decisions, <laughs> would have to drive and force this over the, la- over the line. I am, frankly, um, going to say that governments are not capable of, of achieving that. Um, who else can achieve it? And the reason that I say that is because we've seen the failures uh, from the Coyote, Coyote uh, um, principles that have been uh, completely, to my mind, trashed over the years. You know, uh, you talk about this uh, global enterprise, this, this global community that needs to come together. Well, surely the Kyoto Agreement uh, proved that at government level it was just not achievable. Although it was also the first, the first round, um, these things don't come easily, um, and I, I sort of think it requires a a number of different forces to come to play at the same time. One of them, of course, is that there needs to be uh, some proven business success. At, uh, for example, if that company really is successful at installing cement factories in association with power plants all over the world. Uh, and makes money at it, that's a huge step in the right direction, and it creates a certain amount of economic force for sustainability. Um, similarly, uh, and I, you know, this is the most horrific prospect, but if something, if something dire occurs, if a big chunk of the ice sheet in Western Antarctica falls into the sea and raises sea level by some uh, unpleasant amount, you know, essentially within a matter of days, 24 hours, um, these kind of wake-up calls can shock governments into into beginning to take action. Uh, I I'm also sort of uh, looking for leadership in other places, among the populace, within the religious community, within among activists who are concerned with social justice. Ultimately, I don't think this ends up being a scientific communication problem. It becomes a justice issue and a, a health issue and a moral issue and a theological issue. And those are some of the ways, artistic issue, these are, th- those are some of the ways that mores change. Uh, and if we are going to overcome the, the cultural identity that drives us to consume more and more and, and start to live in a different sense of relationship to our, to our neighbors and our neighbors internationally, other species, then we really have to re. We really need to develop a different cultural identity that supports that. It, this is a uh, a very big issue because now we're talking about a model that redefines uh, social structure, and um, it is surely now America to which a whole world is looking uh, in this and and any other. Um, area of concern, whether it's immigration, uh, business, economics, um, uh, it, it can be anything. So, so really, it seems to me that we in this country have an awful lot to do. Um, we do, we but uh, but do. but you know, if I look back uh, to the 1960s, uh, uh, back at uh, the National Health Service in the UK, this was really the time when they started the preventative. Uh, methodologies um, stop something in its tracks before it even uh, arrives. I- is there something I- in that method that we should be applying now? I mean, we we can continue saying uh, that that we're either here or we're too late or or, or whatever uh, we want to say. But isn't uh, are preventative measures practical in the society that we have today, given? 
a, a, a rather partisan government given a rather poor economy that we have? Well, in California, we're, we're watching that battle unfold, in fact, right now. Um, California has the most progressive climate protection law in the nation. It's called AB 32 here in California, and it requires us to roll back our statewide carbon emissions to 1990 levels in the next 10 years and to more or less eliminate them by the middle of the century, which is where the scientific community says we need to go. Um, That law was passed. It was signed by a Republican governor, Governor Schwarzenegger, who is not, from an environmental point of view, he's not not the typical Republican. Um, And it's now under fire. There are some Texas-based oil companies and some uh, legislators in Sacramento who were trying to put a ballot measure on the ballot that would essentially put an end to implementing AB 32. And so we're seeing the battle being waged over whether AB 32's provisions to reduce carbon emissions will create more jobs or uh, destroy more jobs. Will it stimulate our economy or will it destroy our economy? Um, And people are arguing both sides. The, The economic studies seem to suggest that it will do us a lot of good economically. It'll make us leaner, more competitive. Uh, we'll spend less money on energy and health care and costs and, and that sort of thing. But, but, um, but, with, but with that said, Tom, uh, sorry for interrupting, but with that said, surely the ability of any nation to retain its employment is going to be extremely difficult uh, when you are, you are uh, reliant upon this modern technology to, to run that sustainability. Um, if you haven't got mass employment through manufacturing or industry, mm-hmm. how are the sorts of uh, businesses or, or business models that we're talking about that are going to have to come up, come about now going to employ uh, a, a rising population, going to employ people now, today, that are um, so uh, feeling so misled, feeling uh, so uh, concerned about the, the state of affairs. Isn't that an interesting question? You know, I can remember uh, in the 1970s, even in the 1960s, the great promise of technology is that we wouldn't have to work so much and that we would have more leisure. And here we live in a society that has moved most of its manufacturing base to Asia. And uh, uh, most of us don't feel that we have as much leisure, we have more stress, and we're worried about unemployment. Um, it's a, just an interesting piece of irony. The, the fact is, I mean, the, the, the first moves in implementing any carbon reduction strategy like AB32 is to, scree- is to squeeze energy waste out of the things we already do. Make what we do more energy efficient, and by doing so, we reduce the amount of carbon pollution that comes with using that energy. Now, that won't get us all the way there, but it will get us a significant, a significant part of the way there. And as we do that, we will start to see other opportunities that we don't see yet. I mean, this is going to take time. Um, and I don't think anybody can predict what kind of society we ultimately will need to create if we're going to forestall you know, dire climate change. Um, we can only sort of see as far as we know already, and what we know already is that we can we can you know uh, uh, prosperously remove reduce energy waste by ten, twenty, thirty, fifty percent relatively quickly. And in the process of getting people engaged in doing that, the conversation inevitably becomes, what's next? What do we do on a bigger scale? 
that replaces so much of what we do for a living with other productive things to do that keep us employed but don't don't cause so much harm that that in itself does that not require us as a people to become more morally ethically aligned with the visions that our founding fathers had um, in creating this country now they first of all they uh, required a central government that that was purely a regulatory body that was hands-off that allowed free enterprise allowed people to have property allowed them to be their own capitalists uh, and so on but based upon um, uh, the moral and ethical view that it was God Almighty that drove a country uh, and in that you you then have your morals and ethics and we know that that, that morals and ethics today are at an all-time low so we're working with all these these base grassroots concerns and on top of that I, I was thinking about this last night and I was going to enter this as an argument but I, I now I realize that it's pointless because it's going to happen anyway in one of your statements when I asked you about sustainability in your notes and you had mentioned um, uh, sustaining our current lifestyle in the developed world. Well, th- in actual fact, I, I, how how can we achieve that, Tom? I'm not sure that we are going to be able to sustain the lifestyle that we have today, um, because right. we're we're going to be up against uh, so many economic uh, restrictions. Um, the sustaining a rapid pace of economic development in poor countries um, could be equally difficult if we do not have uh, the funds to uh, in- inject uh, mechanisms in- into foreign countries. Um, so, so that could also be difficult. And one of the things is you said sustaining the current rate of population growth because it, it, it's probably that that is the core of the problem that we have today. Would you not it say? Is. Yeah, I would say it is. Absolutely. And it's an issue that most people consider taboo, and yet it's, it's fundamentally the driver of this. You know, an image that comes to my mind frequently is that uh, any successful species tends to overpopulate and consume resources until, until they reach a limit, and they begin fighting for the fewer, fewer and fewer resources that are there, and they die back. And that's never a pretty sight. You know, if they can't move on, they their numbers decline. We're the one species in the world that's capable of forecasting that and and trying to prevent the hardship and harm that comes with that. Um, now, whether it whether we will, whether we're capable of of overcoming the same sort of biological drive to reproduce and consume that that we share with every other animal species. Uh, and rein it in because we we make a decision that something else is more important to us. It remains to be seen, and I suspect that in some ways much of this conversation is really about that. I have heard moral philosophers say that, that those of us in the developed world are going to have to sacrifice what he calls luxury carbon emissions, meaning a lot of the carbon we emit because we live lavishly uh, in every respect. And, you know, the first thing we can do is live lavishly but more energy efficiently at the same time. And we won't really notice much difference. We just invest in a few things that, that, that squeeze waste out of our homes and our cars and our travel and things like that. But ultimately, I think 
we absolutely have to consider uh, and adjust to the idea that we need to learn how to consume a whole lot less because the rest of the world wants to consume a whole lot more. Um, and we can either fight to protect what we believe is ours, and I think that's a morally repugnant direction to even consider going in, or we have to learn to find a, a completely different balance about what, what matters in our lives. I, I think that what I was getting at before is that this could be just extremely academic, given that <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking as if there's a choice, and, and everything indicates in the world today, especially in this country, that actually there, there will only be one road, and that road will be a, a road of frugality. Um, because of the nature of the economy, the the the, the uh, fiscal mechanisms, the the depletion of uh, of trades and skills and manufacturing and industry, which may not even have to raise that argument anymore, because we'll be mandated to take this road in any case. Well, we saw a, a bit of it in this last year. People people suddenly stopped spending money on lavishness when the economy went bad, and last summer when gasoline prices went over four dollars people suddenly stopped driving um, the truth is that you're right that economic constraint can have a very immediate and powerful impact on the way people prioritize things in their lives if we, if we look at um, the difference between supporters and and opposition what would you say in our society at this stage are are those parties that are opposing the benefits of what we're talking about here in terms of sustainability? Well, I think there are, uh, I sort of see two big camps. One are people who are ideologically opposed to government stepping in and regulating anything. Um, it's sort of a libertarian argument. It's sometimes these days aligned with the, um, the most right, you know, sort of conservative end of the Republican Party as well. Uh, and it basically says free enterprise and a free market is really what it's all about. And, uh, uh, and keep your hands off. And the unfortunate thing about that is that almost every significant environmental improvement, improvement in the last 50 or 80 years has come through government regulation. So uh, it's pretty clear that left, left unregulated, capitalism doesn't take care of common resources very well. Well, and, and is that not the, the, the shape of things that the Founding Fathers did want? I mean, they, they wanted a central government in this country that was purely regulatory serving the people, but having a negative effect where uh, in terms of personal property, uh, freedom, uh, freedom of choice, uh, freedom of uh, religion, uh, all the other freedoms, freedoms that, that, that come with the American dream, um, allowed a nation to, to, to run itself essentially. Um, with the the safeguard or or ring fenced, I guess, by this regulatory body that hadn't that, that did not have any direct participation, is it not a, is it not another irony that we face now that actually with healthcare, uh, the car industry, um, in government ownership that that we are indeed looking at a social socialized system that that goes away from that capitalistic. Um, mandate that they were looking for. To well, it's possible. It's possible, but you know, in, since uh, since Ronald Reagan became president, our government deregulated a lot of things that we took advantage as as being regulated: um, air traffic control, the airline industry, the electric utility industry, the telephone industry. 
were all considered utilities. And you know, and in the, in the founding fathers talked about a government that uh, looks after the common good, because they recognized that people who were amassing wealth for themselves, whether corporately or, or privately, were not interested in looking out for the common good. So that's the job of government. And uh, and for a long time. Energy infrastructure, waste infrastructure, communication infrastructure, roadways, education have been uh, have been defined as the common good elements, worker safety, that need to be looked after, uh, and those things have been turned over to the free market uh, since the 1980s, one after another after another, in the hope that uh, somebody will get rich in the process, and and you know the great the great. Uh, uh, sales pitch for it is that the consumers will have more choice and, and prices will drop. I'm not convinced by that. I, in some ways, these things have worked. In some ways, they haven't worked. Um, but now we're looking at the common good to include massive things, the ocean, the atmosphere, the weather, the climate, food supply. Um, those things are threatened. These things, these things were never part of the definition of what would be regulated by government because they had never been... Uh, they they seemed vast compared to the relatively small number of people who were impacting them back then. Now the number of people and the way we live is is clearly impacting them. Um, they are clearly common resources that that the business community doesn't take care of. Um, well, and it's it, hard it, to imagine we will take care of them without without regulation. It, it, well, if the business community won't take care of it, and the general populace takes a position of well, uh, c'est la vie. Um, th- that's how it is. Uh, let's just let's just let it run its course. Mm-hmm. Then, do you not have to then default back to a government that takes responsibility and accountability for all of these challenges that we face? Because they're really the only body capable of reaching a, 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 and leading a nation's hearts. Right, but the question is, who is whose pressures will the government respond to to get that job done? Um, they're not going to get it from the from many of the most powerful interests in the business community, and the business community is divided. You know, the fossil fuel industry is spending enormous amounts of money to discredit climate scientists and prevent climate policy. Um, when civil rights took hold in this country, um, it was people were driven to a moral a moral change about it, largely by the church, and. Uh, the question is, where will the leadership on the climate issue emerge? Through what institutions in our society will it come that will put a counterbalancing pressure on our our governor, government bodies to do the right thing on our behalf? Can I, can I offer this scenario, um, wrong or right, uh, absurd or constructive? If we continue in the, the present direction, we have an economy that is not strong, an economy that is suffering from every base industry that we've been used to for the last 300 years failing. Uh, we see the merits of a global economy uh, beginning to fade on the other side because we have think tanks and we have opposition uh, the, the Greens that are saying stop the fossil fuels, stop the carbon emissions, stop the, the vapor trails, uh, stop everything th- that is destroying our world, then does this not drive people back into a local economy to to have a um, 
uh, an attitude of let's service our own community, let's service our own state, let's keep uh, opportunity and revenues within our boundaries. I- is that possibly something that also leads to better social awareness, social cooperation, uh, more neighborhood spirit, uh, better moral and ethical um, perspectives because they're, they're not... Uh, attempting to cross over ethical boundaries or religious boundaries? I I don't really know if this... I mean, you see some localism uh, beginning to emerge in the food, in the Eat Local Foods movement. Um, Those movements, though, are not... uh, The science really doesn't back a lot of that up. Uh, And that is to say that the carbon that's emitted from transporting products and foods all over the world is a very, very small percentage of the total carbon footprint of the products and foods that we consume. Uh, much more of it has to do with the way things are produced than the way things are moved around. Uh, and partly that's because ships are a relatively fuel-efficient way to move huge amounts of cargo. So um, focusing on a local economy isn't necessarily the best way to reduce carbon pollution, um, rather, it's focusing on how much fossil energy we use and replacing fossil energy sources with other sources as fast as we could possibly do it, and simultaneously converting the exhaust from power plants into something else that we can use, either into biofuels or into uh, into concrete or, you know, burying it underground um, so that we stop putting it into the atmosphere. Um, but there's a there's a strain in what you said that I think is really important however it becomes expressed, and that is that when Barack Obama was running for president, you suddenly saw a a new populism in this country to support his candidacy. You saw crowds of 75,000 people coming to hear him give a speech. And most of the criticism that has surrounded him, except the criticism from the far right, has been that he's not being progressive enough. He's too much of a corporatist. Um, He's not challenging the institutions. We want bigger change than he's giving us. Um, uh, my hunch is that, that there is a h- enormous percentage of the American public that is looking for a different set of values to emerge. And that is the dilemma, is it not? Is that whether you're talking about government, the private sector, NGOs, it, it all finishes up in one big, huge problem, and that is money. Uh, and and greed it 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 is what today drives the engines of the world mm-hmm. and we seem to be so focused upon it and devoid of any responsibility for uh for other uh moral and ethical positions mm-hmm. that that is this not the the major problem that we're facing here in in serving our world uh, as God intended uh, for us to be caretakers we're still on this track uh, that the world everybody around us um, uh, owes us something and and is is it not possible that if we overcome that sense um, uh, or that attitude that we may just be able to make huge um, uh, strides in in looking at all of these uh, major challenges. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I remember when the Soviet Union collapsed, and I and I really recall thinking, in some ways, this is unfortunate um, 
because of that old slogan that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, when when Americans had a sense that they were vying with uh, a competitor for power, there was at least a sense in in the public that that we could aspire to something more humane. Um, without that, without somebody pressing back, uh, and we've been watching this. Uh, uh, the sense of entitlement to the world's resources is really hard to understand. And I don't yet, have, I haven't sort of answered for myself whether most people are simply oblivious to it um, and, and to the impact that our lifestyle has on the rest of the world, or whether people have decided that they are aware of it and they just don't care. And is it not likely to be the latter of those two, Tom? I, well, I don't know. I think that in corporate boardrooms, that's certainly the case. Although I, I've met people who run major corporations who, who feel driven um, by the need to show a profit every quarter on Wall Street for the sake of their shareholders, and they feel trapped in a system as well. well um, now, I'm not sure that's true for all of them. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even suggest that. But I'm not sure that's true of all, the, all of us. I think that there's a... a because Americans are, you know, the, the American confidence in corporate America, popular confidence in corporate America has shown to be at an all-time low in the last few years. Um, American confidence in, in the fact that, you know, that government will do what it ought to do for our behalf is at an all-time low in the United States. Um, there's a real exaggerated sense that, that those who control the levers of power are greedy and in it for themselves, and that the rest of us, at some level, are uh, are being victimized, just like the people in Bangladesh are being victimized. But the, but the trouble with that, Tom, as well you know, is that those who point fingers at others talking about greed are actually sometimes, if not very often, got four of those fingers pointing back at themselves. It's, it's, it's judgment. It always comes down to judgment. That's right. We love to sit in front of our 50-inch plasma screen and bitch at the government for being greedy. <laughs> it's really quite ironic and stunning, isn't it? What is it, in closing out the program here, I think we've charted really well why we have come to this place at this time. We've uh, charted what sustainability is about, and I think you'll agree that it's more than just environmental uh, protection. It is also about social reform, social, social interaction, uh, much better alignment uh, morally and ethically. What are the precautions? What are the first steps that uh, we as a people, not necessarily as, a, as a, a nation anymore or a government, but we as a people have to do to start rapidly taking action on all of the aforementioned issues? Well, the, the most important step, and I can tell you this from personal experience, the most important step is to do the hardest step, which is to face the facts and really let them sink in. Um, you know, we are... If we don't do this, if we don't, if we don't face up to what we're creating, then within our own lifetimes, David, there's a, there's a fairly good chance that we will begin to watch calamity happen. And at that point, the question of whether we can possibly have a robust economy, even in this country, is called into question. Uh, 
Now, uh, and just to interrupt, but uh, could we cite Haiti as an example there? Because uh, I'm working on that very issue at the moment where we have 600,000 people uh, sitting out uh, under the stars in a country that has been devastated by by natural disaster. Um, are Are those sorts of events that we can expect? Well, um, in, in, to the extent that we're talking about events, you know, as the climate changes and the weather becomes more extreme, we're going to find where our weaknesses are. Uh, that's, what, that's what Katrina showed us. You know, New Orleans was not hit by a Category 4 storm or Category 5 hurricane, literally. It was flooded by a, a failed set of uh, levees that were supposed to keep the water out of it that was overwhelmed by the big storm. So now, does it matter to the people of New Orleans who lost their lives or their homes? Of course it doesn't. Uh, And that's the kind of stuff that we could, that we should prepare to see. We we have to ask ourselves in the southwestern United States, what happens to our lifestyle and our property values and our life savings and our livelihoods if we don't have enough water permanently here? How should we prepare for that? Um, How is America going to deal with a, a... potentially large, significant sea level rise that, that disrupts our port's infrastructure. Now, now if, if, if you're making that statement and you're, you're, you're uh, standing on a soapbox somewhere in a park and a chap comes up, Mr. Mr. Jones comes up, and he says, oh, for goodness sake, yes, exactly. now, what, do you, what do you expect me to do about it? It's people like you who, who've got to deal with this. But you would agree with me, Tom, that it's no good, it's, it's not satisfactory anymore, scientists talking to scientists it, it has to be a bigger greater expanded conversation than that that does uh, have the participation of the people absolutely and, that, that, and that doesn't us, that doesn't talk down to them that's right it, it needs to be a conversation among the people and among the people means uh that that those who are who have expertise in various ways doctors priests teachers businessmen and women uh public social, you know, social workers, all of us need to be conversing with our families and neighbors about what it is we can do. And those of us who are in the communications business and who are tied to the scientific and engineering establishment need to be uh, very clearly telling people what our options are, what is it we can actually do. So when somebody's on a soapbox telling you this is a potentially very dire situation and we need to take it seriously, they can answer the next obvious question, which is, what do you want me to do about it? And I don't think that the establishment has devoted the resources to answering that question yet. There are a lot of independent people who are, entrepreneurs, business people, uh, engineers, and others who are doing it. Just ordinary citizens are doing it. But there is no focused effort yet, and there is no... Uh, to, to sort of bring those voices forward in a coherent way that the rest of us can hear. Do you think it's going to take something really catalytic in this country, like uh, another Katrina or major uh, a tsunami on the western coast or something like that, to wake people up? Well, a lot of people have said that it will. I, I hope, I'm hopeful that it won't. Um, that certainly would wake people up, but... Um, <laughs> It's people like you and people like me and the other people who you have on your program who are doing our best to see to it that that's not required. <laughs> let's, let's, give our, let's wish ourselves the best. Let me, um, uh, in this closing statement, ask you, Tom, uh, where can listeners go to 
Um, and we have not asked this before in our prior program. Where can our listeners go to to uh, look and learn and become educated about the very uh, principles, challenges, and ideas that we've raised today? Um, there are many places to go. Unfortunately, there are quite a few. Um, one of the best is to go to uh, the Pew Center for um, Global Change. It has an FAQ, a sort of a Climate 101 on its website that explains what these issues are, at least from a climate science point of view. Um, there are a, an emerging number of books. Uh, uh, Edward Brand's new book, um, Whole Earth Discipline, that try to describe the state of the world and what the opportunities are. Um, uh, the California Air Resources Board has a, a website called coolcalifornia.org, which has information for business owners, um, case studies. My company is a case study, therefore. How do you reduce carbon, your carbon footprint and not, and not have to overspend on it? How can you save money doing it? Um, would, you, would you also encourage uh, people at local level to start town hall meetings, uh, educating themselves, having discussions, talking about these very problems? Yes, and don't be afraid to call on your local museums and aquariums. Don't be afraid to call on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They see it as their mission to connect you with scientists and other experts who can help your community uh, begin to come to terms with some of these issues. Tom Bowman, uh, it has been a pleasure yet again uh, to um, share this time with you. I certainly hope that we do this again very soon in continuing uh, this uh, discussion on sustainability and our, our precious world. And uh, I will look forward to talking to you again. Many thanks, David. I look forward to it too. And to our listeners, hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have today. You can gain information on this uh, and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. And Tom, uh, your website address is? Is bowmanglobalchange.com. And with that, I will wish our listeners uh, a goodbye for this, uh, this beautiful day. And wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <laughs> David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors